gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm a little amped up this morning just because I got so much stuff to do, and uh, it's the first time I've been doing a. Uh, I've done the solo since I got home from my epic adventure, and um, which we can talk about more later, I guess. Um, so, where to begin? Uh, I should just say, you know, uh, uh, my sympathies and condolences to Diane Feinstein and her. Diane Feinstein's family and staff and friends. She passed away about 15, 20 minutes ago, or at least the news came out that she passed away. She was an impressive woman who lived an impressive life. Um, I'm not sure she'll be the considered the giant of the Senate, the way some people are saying, at least on MSNBC are right now. But she was a more sensible Democrat than a lot of Democrats. She lived a very impressive life. Um, I just come from the school that I kind of react badly when lots of the sort of the chattering classes get incredibly weepy and start talking about it being sort of tragic that very accomplished, impressive people who lived very full and accomplished lives um, pass away in their 90s. Yeah, for, 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 for family and friends, it's a, it's a really big deal and I don't want to diminish that at all. But that is not a tragic life that is a life fulfilled and it's something worthy more of celebrating than of some of the performative gnashing of teeth and rending a cloth that at least I was just watching a few minutes ago but I don't want to dwell on that because it sounds dyspeptic and whatnot and so um, rest in peace condolences and uh, it should be very interesting politics that come out of this to see what Gavin Newsom does Um, but we can talk about that another time what else to talk about? Um, we had the debate this week. It was um, not great, Bob. You know, we talked about this a good deal on the Dispatch podcast with Yuval. It was just me, Steve, and Yuval, which was um, fun. I do not want to start hosting the Dispatch podcast more. It just sort of fell to me because Steve was wildly sleep deprived. Sarah's still on maternity leave and Mike Warren is on vacation. It may seem strange that I'm so averse to guest hosting given that I do this podcast, but I know there's just something about it. I don't know. Maybe it's the strange expectation of professionalism that comes with doing a different podcast that, you know, is totally antithetical to the proper functioning of this podcast. It's funny. So, Oh, I didn't tell you, but maybe I did tell you, I don't know. I was in Iowa last weekend. Um, went to Declan Garvey, our executive editor's, Really just just lovely wedding, you know, in almost every regard. The setting was great. The weather was great, except for a brief bit of rain that really just sort of added some character to the whole thing. Um, everyone was just incredibly nice and generous and sweet and very Midwestern, um, very Declan, because for people who don't know, well, Declan is wicked smart, um, as they say it in uh, Boston. He's exceedingly Midwestern. Um, and a really decent guy. And his now wife, who is our preferred cat sitter, Maddie, is is just about one of the nicest people I've ever met. And so they're going to make a great couple. And it was a great wedding and all that. But it was also fun for us just because we got to see some people that we don't get to see that often and do something that was just, just friggin' nice. It was also interesting for me because I talked to a bunch of people who are remnant listeners, which is, again, always a little strange for me because... 
much like the G file, I have this attitude of I'm putting a note in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean and you never really expect to meet the people who read the thing. And I know that's sort of silly, but it's sort of my mental crutch, the way I envision these things, not on a rational level, but just sort of like, that's how I get through the day. Um, I remember Russ Roberts once pointing out that even a middling successful podcast, you know, which has, let's say 5,000 listeners, we have considerably more than that. We probably have you know, the full universe of people who, who, who download and listen to an episode over 90 days. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but it's, it's more like 50,000 plus or minus, depending upon the topic, the news, the, the guest and all that. But I remember Russ Roberts saying, you know, if you, as a, if you give a speech or give a talk at a school and you have 500 people in a room, you would think that's just a massive turnout. If he had 5,000, it would be, you know, I mean, I think I've only spoken to maybe two audiences, live audiences that ever approached anything like that. Um, and it's a heady thing, you know, and the idea of speaking to a football stadium full of people is really hard to get your mind around. Um, but in effect, that's sort of what I do on this this podcast, a small football stadium, maybe not NFL, but a good size university football stadium. And if I thought about that, I would um, I would fall off the high wire pretty regularly. And then, of course, you know, TV is even different than that. But um, how did I get on this? Oh, so uh, we got into a bit of a debate with a couple of people because, uh, you know, my wife does not like the solo podcast. She thinks it's bad for my soul. Um, she thinks that just vomiting up thoughts as they come into my head as if they're worth vomiting out there in front of people is some a kind of corrupting. And I, I completely understand the argument because it was part of my argument for not doing a solo thing for a couple of years. And um, it's also one of the reasons why it makes me so friggin' uncomfortable. And again, maybe I was just eager to hear some defense of it, but uh, uh, a friend of ours made the case that one of the reasons why he likes the solo is it's fun to listen to how uncomfortable I am actually doing this which is kind of meta, but uh, I'll, I'll take it as a, as a crutch. And the, the person knows who, uh, who I'm talking about knows who he is, but I'm not going to out him on, on here. But do know I am, uh, if, if I stop to think about, it's like riding a bike kind of thing. If you think about riding a bike, you can kind of get lost in it and mess up. But if you just do it, it's no problem. Um, that's sort of how I feel about this sometimes. And that's why I I, I, I don't want scripts or notes, or I have some notes. I just write down ideas or words sometimes, but I don't, you know, I don't want an outline or anything like that because that makes it seem more real. All right, so enough uh, peeking into the abyss of, of, of Jonah's psyche. Uh, where to go? Um, okay, the debate, um, back to the debate. It vexed me. Um, I did not enjoy watching it at all. I don't think anybody did. You know, there are some train wrecks that are just fun to watch. And then there are some that you really you're like, ew, I don't want to see that arm come off, you know, or, oh my gosh, that decapitation isn't as clean as I would want. You know, it just, it's gross. Part of what I disliked about it is there are people on there I respect and there were people on there I don't, you know, on the stage. But uh, I think they all came out diminished from it, just with the the, the sort of, 
thirsty desperation. You know, this is my last shot to get in my zinger, the last shot to make a difference. And so all the crosstalk, all of that was just exhausting to me. Um, it made me feel like, um, this is a very Gen X reference, but it made me feel like Chandler Bing from Friends when his parents fight where I just want to sort of get up and start dancing and smoking cigarettes just to get attention away, to get their attention away from the fighting. Uh, but okay, that said, as a matter of punditry, I think the focus groups were basically right, at least the ones I've seen. I haven't studied this because I don't think the debates matter that much and it's already fading from memory. But I think DeSantis had, his, had a really good night um, on the merits, right? I'm not talking about necessarily politically because I don't, again, I don't think this matters much. I don't think it changes dynamics all that much, except maybe at some sort of secondary or tertiary level when it comes to like fundraising or internal morale and momentum kind of thing, or maybe at the level of heightening tensions between different campaigns. Cause it does seem that like Nikki and Tim Scott are, probably not as good friends today as they were two days ago. DeSantis was looser. He was smarter. He did a lot less of that of that woke stuff and a lot more of leaning into his actual strengths, which is knowing about policy and stuff. I think he hit the right notes better. I think Nikki was very good too. Um, I think she was not as good as she was in the first night just because she came across more desperate in part because everyone came across more desperate because everyone was just fighting for what airtime they could get. But she, she definitely communicated that she has a really firm grasp of issues. Uh, I worry that issues just don't matter very much right now. Big picture, they came out of it. They got the most out of it. Um, I will say that uh, Tim Scott, given that I think he basically got a D minus or F for the first debate, he got a solid B in this one. I mean, he actually showed up, which he didn't in the first one in, in, in a lot of ways. Chris Christie did fine, maybe even good, except that Donald Duck line. Like, so if you missed it and you haven't seen the clip, he clearly had this rehearsed thing, this prepared thing about how Trump was a chicken for not showing up and we know you're watching and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just, it, it was so clearly prepared and which is kind of funny given that, you know, his kill shot against Rubio in 2016 was accusing him of having prepared little speeches. But anyway, Christie has this, this thing that he's clearly winding up to a kicker of a line. And he's like, you know, if you don't show up for the next one, pe people are going to stop calling you Donald Trump and start calling you Donald Duck. Borderline Clark Griswold dad joke. And I love dad jokes, but it was bad dad jokes and forced bad dad jokes incredibly lame. Now, maybe they know something. Maybe they focus grouped the heck out of Iowans and found like 80-year-olds who like really forced, corny, anti-Trump dad jokes are one of the few areas of growth for the Christie campaign. Then all power to them, but I kind of doubt that. I also think that Pence had a much worse debate than he did the first night. It was not, and it wasn't fatal because none of this is fatal in and of it by itself. But that line about how he's been dating with, I mean, that he's been sleeping with a teacher for 38 years or whatever it was, referencing his wife, uh, just, yeah, just so much cringe, as the kids might say. The guy that every policy wonk person I know has a soft spot for, for is, um, is Doug Burgum. And I thought he did great. You know, I would say 
Um, as I was saying this on the dispatch podcast, as a ratio of sort of at bats during the debate and successful hits, he had the best batting average of anybody. I mean, he, I don't think he had many false notes in part because he didn't get to speak very much. And when he did speak, he was good. He was particularly, you know, his real thing is energy. It kind of, kind of feels sometimes like he's auditioning to be an energy secretary, but he's right about a lot of the subsidy electric car stuff. I've been reading up on it because I want to write about it. There's a lot of Bastiat's broken window stuff going on that, that anyway, I might do a G file about it today or a column next week about it. Um, but anyway, he was really, really good. I really love Dana Perino. She's a wonderful person. People who think she's just another pretty face are wrong. She's wicked smart. She's a serious person. Um, I think she's, I think she's kind of wasted on the five. I don't like the five. You know, I don't like a lot of Fox programming and I would like to think that it wasn't her idea but I thought that last question from her where she wanted everybody to write down who should be voted off the island was terrible. And um, and I give credit to all of them for refusing to do it for the most part with the exception of uh, Christie who kind of played a little game, but it was fine, you know, vote Trump off the island. But DeSantis, I think, gets the most credit because he's the one who just sort of you know, spoke up first and said, I think this is beneath our dignity or that's undignified or something like that. And it was just bad. Everything was bad. It was infotainment kind of BS. I'd like to think it was mandated from on high or something. Um, the other possibility is that it was just a product of the kind of group think you get in a room. But anyway, we talked a lot about this on the Dispatch podcast um, because I think it's something of a scandal, the questions that none of them asked. And I'd like to think that the reason they didn't ask them was because they assumed the candidates themselves would bring them up. But I don't know. Um, anyway, we talked about that a bunch in the Dispatch podcast. All right, moving on from all that. Oh, so yesterday there was, I know I talk about a lot about like communism stuff around here lately, and I'm not going to apologize for it, but I'll try to come up with some, you know, maybe some Byzantine Empire stuff down the road. So Phil Bump has this piece in the Washington Post. I know there are a lot of people on the right who can't stand Bump and and give him a really hard time. I kind of like the guy. I don't always agree with him. Um, I find some of his pieces pretty useful. You know, I kind of like the sort of data, you know, uh, Google Analytics stuff. When when I'm interested in the subject, I'm interested in those kinds of pieces. Uh, he has this piece about the evolution or the sudden arrival of CCP or Chinese Communist Party as a pejorative. Um, I thought it was just really kind of tone deaf. And one of these things that like I can almost envision the editorial meeting where people are sitting around spitballing things to write about. And someone says, and what is up with all these guys talking about the Chinese Communist Party as if it's like, you know, this incredible enemy or whatever. I mean, it, is it, you know, and getting caught up in like this idea that, oh, these boobs are saying stupid things. I mean, I think a lot of problems, not the majority or anything like that, but a lot of the problems that the mainstream media gets into, you know, some of it is like the Fox News effect. If Fox is covering something closely or intensely, that makes it less likely the rest of the media will cover it. There's also just sort of this natural assumption, and it happens to, on both sides for sure, that if one side takes up a 
a talking point, a locution, um, a meme, um, an inside joke or whatever, the other side has to assume... If the other side doesn't know what it's about or where it comes from, they just assume it's boob bait and stupid. And that's how this thing felt, right? And so, look, I, again, grew up passionately anti-communist dad, cut my teeth on being a conservative via sort of anti-communism stuff. The idea that it would be sort of um, juvenile, bigoted is the wrong word, but, you know, sort of Yahoo-ish to put stink on the term Chinese Communist Party, uh, just, it, it's, for me, it's petting the cat backwards. It just, it, it drives me crazy. Chinese Communist Party killed tens of millions of Chinese people. The Chinese Communist Party is the real government of China. The Chinese Communist Party is an authoritarian organization, if not, a to, if not completely a totalitarian, but it's on its way, organization. Um, it's becoming more totalitarian under Xi, at minimum cultural genocide, if not outright genocide in all sorts of places. It is a profoundly racist organization that imposes a Jim Crow system on its own people so that if you're not Han Chinese, you are at minimum a second class, if not lower citizen. And the idea that somehow, oh, those, those ugly American nativist dumb Republicans you know, listen to them talk about, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party as if it's, you know, as if that's a bad thing is just such, I think, a tone dev piece. And, and look, I mean, there's actual nuance in the thing, but from the headline, from the Twitter promotion, from the, the sort of base assumptions of it, it just really bothered me. Moreover, and I think Mike Gallagher deserves a lot of credit for this, you know, he is taking great pains to, uh, sorry, Congressman Mike Gallagher, he's the chairman of this Chinese, you know, this, this China commission um, or, uh, or co uh, committee, special committee. He's taking great pains to distinguish the Chinese people, the Chinese nation, Chinese society generally from the Communist Party of China. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's the exact same argument You've heard a million times about the Iranian regime and the malocracy versus the Iranian people. It is just like sort of responsible statesmanship 101, not to say we're against China. And you can be sure, absolutely sure, if Republicans kept talking about how the Chinese are bad and how China is bad, they would be called racists and bigots and xenophobes. In fact, they were called all of that at the beginning of the pandemic for um, questioning the origins of of COVID. You know, there was all that stuff. Remember, there was all that stuff with, with you know, Bill de Blasio and others going to like Chinatown and wearing masks to show solidarity or, or refusing to wear masks around Chinese people. I mean, there was a lot of weird, dumb stuff at the, very, at the early stages of COVID to sort of virtue signal that if you disagreed with Democrats or something that you were anti-Chinese, um, there was a lot of, remember, there was a lot of weird, weird stuff from World Health Organization types who I think in many ways were one way or another bought and paid for by China um, because the Chinese Communist Party, you know, the Chinese government, again, I, I think that's a small distinction at this point, but was, was pressuring the WHO to like, 
that suggestions that came from China were bigoted, suggestions that wet markets were bad, uh, was bigoted and culturally imperialistic. Xi has this whole thing about traditional Chinese medicine that um, um, because he doesn't like to concede that quote unquote Western medicine or Western science is superior to quote unquote authentic Chinese science. And the problem is, is that, you know, look, the reality is that science is science. It's not really, I mean, it's, it's, it's got a lot of origins in the West, not all of its origins to be sure, but traditional Chinese medicine, they may have stumbled on some interesting things there. I'm sure there's some folk remedies that have a scientific explanation to them and all that kind of stuff. But if you're going to say that it's this, this, parallel alternative to science what you're our western science what you're really saying is is that that the laws of physics and math are not universal and change you know in different places and in and and, uh, and what is that called polylogism uh i just i don't buy any of that stuff anyway and so you know mike gallagher goes great lengths to sort of just make this distinction and it's the right and responsible distinction to make and so making fun of republicans for focusing on the chinese communist party rather than just saying the red chinese um as we used to say or just blanket the chinese seems to me like really counterproductive and kind of know nothing ish like um again just because a bunch of right wingers who i'll be the first to stipulate are very prone to picking up populist nonsense and and dumb stuff doesn't mean automatically that everything they say doesn't have a solid, factual, persuasive argument behind it. So anyway, that bothered me. Another thing, so this is a little more complicated and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds in it because it's been a long time since I've, I've read up on a lot of this stuff. But so you saw in Canada, there was this uh, guy who fought with the Germans, this Ukrainian who fought with the Germans in World War II, was like 94 years old or something like that. This member of parliament brought him to parliament and he got a standing ovation. And then it turned out that, you know, they thought he was, he just was a Ukrainian, you know, veteran freedom fighter guy, you know, who had fought the Russians or something like that. And no one really did the due diligence. And it turns out, no, he was fighting with the Nazis. I think I'm pretty clear that fighting, I think fighting with the Nazis is bad. And I should be specific in the case of this guy, he was fighting with a Ukrainian Waffen SS unit. And those were, those were bad guys. So I'm not trying to defend this guy in particular, but, there were there's a lot of glib kind of black hats versus white hats um, talk out there about this episode and episodes like this that just again rubs me the wrong way in the sense that yes there were a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of Russians who fought with the Germans in World War II that didn't make all of them I'm not talking about defending this guy who fought with the SS because the SS was cut above bad right. But as a general proposition, if you were if you were a Russian or Ukrainian fighting with the Germans in World War II on the Eastern Front, you weren't fighting for you know Nazi anti-Semitism or the Holocaust or any of that stuff. You were fighting to liberate 
either Russia or Ukraine from Stalin. And, you know, I, I, I had a, some, a couple of interesting conversations with people in, in the CNN green room who thought this was just sort of this cut and dried, you know, screw up. And I, and I think, again, in this guy's case, it was a cut and dried screw up, right? The guy, you know, the member of parliament, I think he resigned, the guy who brought this, this Ukrainian SS guy and quit because he didn't do his due diligence. Do your due diligence about that kind of stuff, right? From talking to people and from reading some stuff, uh, from, you know, some comments on Twitter and things and, and some blogs, you get the sense that any Ukrainian or any Russian, um, never mind all the other ethnicities inside the Russian or Soviet empire, who fought on the side of the Germans must have been doing it for, you know, to keep, you know, Auschwitz or Buchenwald going. And that's just, it's, it's not the history. I'm sure it's true of some people, you know, lots of anti-Semitism in Russia. A lot of the anti-Semitism in America and the world in the 20th century is, a, I want to say it originates in Russia, but Russia, you know, Russia is the one who signal boosted the protocols of the elders of Zion more than anybody else. And they printed scads of copies of it during the Russian, during the, the Tsarist empire. And then they, you know, they continue to peddle versions of it under the Soviets. And a lot of the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic stuff that permeates the third world, a lot of the conspiracy theories um, were KGB propaganda things in large part because the Soviets were pissed that, particularly Stalin, um, Stalin was super pissed that Israel was going to be founded essentially as a socialist country, but a pro-American country. And going back to the, you know, the the first meetings of the third common turn, or I'm sorry, the third international, um, which became common turn, the refusal of any socialist movement or state or organization or party um, to be subservient to Moscow was proof that you were fascist under Stalin's social theory of fascism. But moreover, it was just seen as a betrayal, right? Cold War was beginning and, and Israel should have been um, with the Soviets in Stalin's view. And, and from that led uh, the doctor's plot uh, conspiracy theory and a lot that last wave of anti-Semitic um, purges and, and assaults from Stalin because he became convinced that all the Jews around him were Zionist agents. And anyway, that's a, that's a digression on top of my digression from my digression. Let me get back to where I was going. So, again, I, I told you about how, you know, my dad was a pretty sincere anti-communist. Uh, he convinced me, I don't, I want to say in 11th grade, maybe it was 12th grade, to do a history term paper on Andre Vlasov. Um, Andre Vlasov was the head of something called the Russian Liberation Army, um, which was, and again, this is from, I should have gone back and looked, I'm sure there's something on Wikipedia here. So if anything sounds wrong to you, do some Googling. But I'm, I'm, I think directionally, I, I still remember this stuff pretty well. So Vlasov was captured by the Germans, flipped um, after some persuasion to head up something that became known as the Russian Liberation Army for propaganda purposes. It had some other name, Kona, Koder, something like that. And it was all Russian, not Ukrainian, all Russian uh, divisions on paper, right? So for a very long time, Hitler refused to actually let this thing be a thing. But as the war 
uh, but he loved the propaganda value of it. And so one of the tragedies of a lot of the propaganda value of it was that a lot of Russians, I mean, tragedy may be, tra tragedy in this case is eye of the beholder, but one of the consequences of, uh, of the success of the propaganda thing was uh, a lot of Russians defected or surrendered, hoping to join the Russian Liberation Army, only to find out it wasn't a thing in reality. It was just a paper tiger thing. But eventually, they put together some form of it, run by Vlasov, who was an Orthodox Russian, Russian Orthodox Christian, as were a lot of the people who were part of this thing. You know, there was sort of the last remnants of the whites from the Russian Civil War, victims of or relatives of victims of Stalin's purges, conscripts who didn't want to fight for the Bolsheviks to begin with. Uh, they put together a number of divisions. I can't remember how many. And they sent some of them to the Western Front because they didn't trust them to be fighting. Near, the Nazis didn't trust them to be fighting around Germans. They didn't want to give Russians weapons on the Eastern Front. And so they sent a bunch to the Western Front, but none of these guys wanted to shoot Americans or British or Canadian or French people, um, their whole point was they want to get rid of Stalin. So like, if memory serves, a lot of them just surrendered when they got over there. Um, a lot of them surrendered on D-Day. They were not an effective fighting force in the West. But in the East, they were, they were pretty good when they were allowed to fight, but the Germans kept them on such a short leash. The funny thing is the reason why I became renewed interested in this is that when I lived in Prague, people might remember there was a pink tank that was there. I don't know if it's still around, but it was part of the, you know, the the, the Velvet Revolution and all that. Uh, Vlasov just got finally so pissed off by the maltreatment by the Germans that uh, they ended up, you know, it's funny, according to Soviet history, the Red Army liberated Prague. But at least according to some versions, obviously this is a very contested area of history. The the first Russians into Prague to liberate it were actually Vlasov's Russian Liberation Army that turned on the Germans and fought the Germans in Prague. And then the Red Army caught up. Anyway, things didn't go well for the Vlasovites, as you can imagine. Lots of people were executed. You know, Stalin executed lots of people who, lots of POWs. Uh, there's a great book called Victims of Vialta, um, where basically FDR and lamentably Churchill too, basically sold out an enormous number of, of Russian POWs, sending them back where they knew they were going to be executed. Part of that was Stalin's paranoia because, well, a lot of that was Stalin's paranoia, um, but not all of his paranoia was completely unjustified because a lot of Russian POWs ended up fighting for Germans. I think a bunch of, uh, something like, I don't know, a bunch of them fought in, a lot of Russians fought on the side of the Germans at Stalingrad. And the reason I bring this up is, again, Hitler, very bad. Holocaust, very bad. Nazis, very bad. But just because Stalin was fighting them doesn't make Stalin good. And if put yourself for a couple seconds in the shoes of some Russian soldier, Russian citizen, Ukrainian soldier, citizen, whatever who has seen family members dragged out and shot in the street, has seen neighbors tortured, has seen churches blown up, has seen whole villages deported, 
to the to Siberia, seen mass executions, all manner of just horrible crimes perpetrated by the Bolsheviks, perpetrated by Stalin. And then you have this opportunity to rid your country of Stalin, or in the case of the Ukrainians, to liberate your country from the yoke of the Russians. You might adopt a the enemy of my enemy is my friend position. It doesn't mean that all of these people were Teuton-loving, uh, anti-Semitic, genocidal maniacs. It's just more complicated. And, you know, this enemy of my enemy thing is a very, very deeply enmeshed dynamic of, of human psychology and of world history. I mean, I really like the Irish people. I like, you know, giving Irish people a hard time because it's because they can take it and they have a sense of humor about it and it's fun. And, you know, it's to me, it's like Jewish humor and Irish humor are very similar. But Irish, you know, Irish had all sorts of bad from from my um, Anglo-American centrism, centrist position. You know, a lot of Irish people had bad foreign policy views in World War II and, and World War I and, and, and Cold War and all sorts of things because the Irish are pissed at the British. And so if the British, you know, if you're friends with the British, maybe you're not friends with the Irish, according to at least some Irish. And like, that's a human thing. Um, you know, South Africa's, you know, uh, you know, majority black governments have, I would argue, very bad foreign policy positions on a lot of things or, 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 or many do. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but, you know, the Soviets were very sympathetic to, you know, the ANC and Mandela and all that during the Cold War. And the, you know, the, the apartheid government was was very anti-communist. And so you can see why, you know, this arises. And I think it's a useful exercise to ask yourself sometimes when you're looking at foreign policy stuff, are you taking your position based upon some larger question of interests or principles? Both are important. Um, and if you think it's just interests, I think you aren't paying attention to what your actual principles are. Um, and if you think it's just principles, you are destined to make some really bad foreign policy choices. It's interests and principles and how they interplay with each other. But as a, it's a useful exercise to ask yourself, how much of this has to do with my friends? You know, these countries are our friends, and so therefore their enemies are my enemies. And how much of it has to do with, like, the underlying, you know, arguments? And this is when I do that kind of inventory, I'm not saying I've been right about everything in foreign policy ever, but, like, one of the nice things about being a pro-democracy, pro-liberal democracy guy is that it's much easier to figure out who your friends are in, in a way that's consistent with some kind of principle. Um, I talked about this, you know, I don't know, last week, two weeks ago, something like that, about how con bad countries, and I mean, you know, I'm using it as a colloquial shorthand for a mix of bad regimes and bad political systems or, or, or black or, or undesirable or dysfunctional cultural impulses, but, you know, autocratic, totalitarian, undemocratic in one way or the other, illiberal in one way or the other regimes end up being buddies um, because they're just too obnoxious for democracies to hang out with for long periods of time, um, at least healthy, stable, fully developed democracies.
And similarly, it's like as annoying and as bad as some democracies can be by our lights, looking at you, France, at the end of the day, you know you're on the same team. And so it kind of helps. It's the gray areas where you get into, you know, like that's right. I was talking about the Pinochet stuff, you know, where you get into countries where the regime is bad, but it's better than the alternatives or could, or it's arguably better than the alternatives. Um, and that there's um, and one of the things that makes it better is that there's a path towards it becoming a good regime. I always loved giving people a heart, you know, bothering people when I would defend the Shah of Iran. Uh, and now, again, I want to be really careful about this. I don't actually defend the Shah of Iran. I just think, I used to argue, I still do, that he got a bad rap. It's hard for people to remember now. And again, when the Iranian Revolution came, um, you know, I was, I was in grade school, so some of this was, you know, uh, stuff, arguments I developed later in, you know, high school and you know, in, in, at my dad's knee and whatnot. But the Shah of Iran was a modernizer. He was corrupt, for sure, right? Not particularly super democratic. I know I'm going to hear from uh, my friend Shay about all of this, who's a um, Iran guru. But he was directionally going in a good direction. He was good on women, right? He was good on women's rights. He was uh, good on education. He was trying to make Iran a m modern, developed maybe not fully secular, you know, but more secular, more Western-oriented nation. And it, it elicited a massive backlash that led to the Ayatollahs taking over. It's hard for people to remember, this is what I was going to say, it's hard for people to remember today, but man, there were a lot, I don't think it was like uniformly like a cause celeb of the left or anything like that, but there were people on the radical left I, you know, Foucault is the one who immediately comes to mind, but I, I, there were definitely others. Loved the Iranian Revolution, um, supported the Ayatollahs because it was anti-Western, right? And so, again, it's this logic of the enemy of my enemy kind of thing um, plays into it. A lot of the idiocy of a lot of anti-Americanism, which I used to almost exclusively talk about on the left, stems from this impulse to take the side of anybody who hates your own country. Um, you always want to sort of like, you know, the anti-American left used to have that and still does this knee jerk response that if we treat someone like an enemy, it's our enemy who must have the right side of the argument. Cuba, Soviet Union, China, Vietnam. I mean, you go down a long list and Iran was sort of one of them. Again, Foucault is not American, but you get the point. And I should say that you now see, because horseshoe theory is my curse, the same dynamic taking place on big chunks of the right. A lot of these Putin fanboys, and to a lesser extent, Mao fanboys. I mean, there's this, you know, there is this, and Stalin fanboys. There's this thing going on in the creepier parts of like the, I don't know what we even call it today. People don't use the phrase alt-right that much anymore. Of the creepier part of the sort of fever swamp right, populist right, MAGA right, MAGA adjacent right, gripers, all those guys, there is this love of historic enemies of the United States, love of strong men and autocrats um, all over the place, and not just about Putin. Um, but a lot of this like pro-Russia stuff is, is right-wing anti, it stems from what I would argue is right-wing anti-Americanism. Not all of it, you know, a lot of it to one extent or another. So anyway, I really hope other people agree that this is part of the charm that I get lost while, while doing this stuff. 
I had a point I wanted to wrap with. Oh, yeah. So uh, uh, I don't know if this was it, but I don't think I closed the circle on it. The Shaw, right? So the Shaw was not great, Bob, but he was better uh, than certainly what replaced him. But in the 70s and 80s, there was this sort of just knee-jerk assumption that revolutionaries who toppled an autocrat had good reason to do it. Um, and, you know, the fact that the Iranian revolution, the mullahs initially had a lot of alliances with the communists that kind of added some revolutionary leftist frisson to the whole thing, you know, and so it was just sort of fun saying, you know, the Shah, you know, hey, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but, you know, at least he was for women's rights and human rights, I mean, total hypocrite, tortured people. I'm not trying to like, again, not really actually trying to defend him, just trying to say that like the caricature of him was off base and, um, it's very much a, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick, dictators and double standards point. So it's useful. That's what I was trying to get at. I'm not going to belabor it now. But, you know, thinking about, you know, how much of this sort of knee jerk confirmation bias thing plays in your thinking about foreign policy or I guess even domestic policy and domestic politics is a useful thing to every now and then check yourself about. It can distort are thinking a lot of the time. And that was my point about having some superstructure of what our alliances are and what they mean and why we're allied with certain people or certain countries. It clarifies this friend-enemy distinction in ways that have actual philosophical and, and, um, and principled substance to them. And it's superior to the, uh, you know, the tribal sort of, oh, we just have, you know... I'm not, I'm, I'm a little conflicted on this. I have no problem with having long historic ties between countries being an important part of foreign policy, you know, and that kind of thing, because it's part of human nature and you're not going to get rid of it. Look, we are more likely to fight a war to defend Britain from being invaded than we are to defend uh, Romania from being invaded. Not because Romania is a bad country. It's just because we have these deep historic ties to Britain and they're, our, you know, arguably our closest ally. That's part of human life and whatever. But it's worth scratching the surface a little bit and thinking about, well, why do we have these historic ties? You know, why do we value this relationship over that relationship more? Um, and is it undergird by something other than sort of just sort of tribal affinity or, or, or religious commonality or whatever it is? And I just think it's a useful exercise so that you're not, you're not just ra post hoc rationalizing a sort of tribal way of thinking about things. So I want to be careful about this. Uh, I should talk about this a little bit. So yesterday was the impeachment hearing, which I think, okay, so just as a matter of politics, I think it is idiotic, beyond idiotic to launch the first day of these impeachment inquiry hearings, it's not impeachment hearings, impeachment inquiry, basically 24 hours before you're going to be held responsible for shutting the government down. Doesn't matter if you think you have the goods on Joe Biden six ways from Sunday, either postpone the shutdown or postpone the hearings. But it is just incredibly stupid to me, unjustifiably stupid to me, to hold this sort of, uh, you know, Fishing expedition, and when I say fishing expedition, I'm not trying to dismiss them as a fishing expedition. That's the way usually you hear fishing expedition. They admit their own witnesses, Jonathan Turley, admitted that this is essentially a fishing expedition because they don't have the evidence right now. 
right? The whole rationale stated by them to doing these is that they need more documents and more information. And I agree with Andy McCarthy that that's a bad argument because the Trump administration, the Department of Justice, overseen by Bill Barr, penned a, quite a persuasive, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, wrote a persuasive memo, finding, ruling, whatever, from the Office of Legal Counsel, saying that an improperly formed impeachment inquiry does not have the increased impeachment powers associated with an impeachment hearing if it hasn't been properly voted on by the House, right? Because Nancy Pelosi's first impeachment, she did it unilaterally. She didn't put it up for a vote. Kevin McCarthy screamed bloody murder saying, you can't do this. This is improper. McCarthy was, according to the Justice Department, and I think according to Pelosi, ultimately correct, which is why she ultimately did put it up for a vote. McCarthy had to do the same thing Pelosi did because he didn't have the votes. The GOP right now is currently constituted. They could not get past an actual impeachment inquiry vote um, because at minimum, most of the 18 Republican congressmen who uh, won Biden, won, represent districts Biden won, wouldn't vote for it. And so he had to go back on his whole position and do exactly what Pelosi did, which he has he said was illegitimate, um, because he had to feed the 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 Gatesian alligator one limb at a time on this nonsense. Okay, so it would have been better if they just continued doing the base hit investigatory hearings under the Oversight Committee and the Judiciary Committee, rather than do this, which now gives the Biden administration the ability to quote bars DOJ and the ruling of, I can't remember his name, Levin, something like that, a Trump-appointed judge who agreed with the bar Trump administration position. It's, it's ass-backwards. It's not smart strategically, okay? Regardless, we are where we are doing this. They're, they're doing this explicitly as a fishing expedition. Um, I think that's bad politics going into a government shutdown that your party is causing. But there we are. I think I've been pretty clear on here. And I wrote, a, again, I wrote a column about this recently. I think the line that there's no evidence uh, that Biden did anything bad, that there's no evidence pointing to, to shady stuff by Biden Inc. or Biden crime family or whatever we're going to call it, is a bad talking point. There's a lot of evidence it's just mostly circumstantial evidence, partial evidence. Um, I hate the phrase smoking gun. Um, and I hate the way people normally say circumstantial evidence as if that means unrelated coincidence. No, most trials, most trial convictions come with circumstantial evidence. Because if you have direct evidence, which is almost but not quite synonymous with this concept called proof, you tend not to go to trial because the accused cop a deal, right? They don't, you know, like, like you don't, if, if they have video of you murdering somebody, you're less likely to actually demand a trial where the prosecutors are going to go for the maximum punishment because you're making them go to trial. You, you trade a confession to spare the government expense and, um, and for a, uh, 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 slightly less harsh punishment. So most evidence in courtrooms is circumstantial evidence. And, you know, so circumstantial evidence is stuff like at the time of the robbery, the, 
at immediately after the bank robbery, there's video of you in the vicinity running quickly. Now, that's circumstantial because it doesn't prove you robbed the bank, but it does prove that it's possible you ran the bank. And you can make inferences, particularly a jury can make inferences from that. So if you were wearing, you know, jogging shorts and earbuds and you were going for a, and you were going, clearly just going for a run, that's weaker circumstantial evidence than if you were seen on video taking off a wig and a mask and you were carrying a giant sack that said that had a dollar sign on it. That's very, very, very strong circumstantial evidence, if not outright proof, right? Or direct evidence. You know, it is at this point still circumstantial evidence that Bob Menendez had gold bars in his house um, that used to belong to, according to the serial numbers, um, his uh, one of the his uh, indicted uh, fellow, you know, conspirator, indicted conspirator guys. Um, it's not proof of bribery, but it's certainly combined with a lot of other stuff, pretty powerful circumstantial evidence. And so anyway, I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's proof that Joe Biden has lied. And this, I think, is one of the problems that a lot of people get into. If I say you robbed the bank and you say, no, I didn't. I was nowhere near the bank at the time of the robbery. And I prove, in fact, you were near the bank at the time of the robbery. That doesn't prove you robbed the bank. It proves you're lying about not being in the vicinity. In other words, proving a lie doesn't establish, doesn't establish the truth that you wanted to establish. But you can make inferences from people who lie, right? Because if you have a perfectly good explanation for everything, you don't need to lie. So lies, you know, are, are evidence in and of themselves. But they're not necessarily evidence of criminal guilt of something. Joe Biden could have been lying about his relationship with his son for all sorts of reasons that don't mean he was in on the influence peddling scheme. And it was an influence peddling business, right? At least on the customer facing side, they were selling access to Joe Biden. That is obvious now. I don't know any serious sort of Biden defenders who are paying attention who deny that at this point. Even Jamie Raskin admits that. The question is whether or not Joe Biden was in on it or whether or not his brothers and his son were doing this stuff when he was vice president. And I'm going to get back to that in a second. When he was vice president or president um, or the Senate, right? When he was in office, whether they were doing this stuff with his co-op, knowing cooperation or not. Joe Biden has been proven to be lying when he says, I didn't know anything about my son's business. That's obviously untrue. He brought Hunter along on on Air Force Two for trips. I I think it's in Hunter's book that Hunter says that he had a conversation with his dad where his dad said, I hope you know what you're doing. It is obviously untrue that Joe Biden, I'd have to go back and look exactly when he said, I didn't know anything about my, I don't know anything about my son's business, but um, because that does matter. But it's obviously true that he was lying. But the reason why he was lying isn't necessarily because he was taking bribes or anything like that. It's because his son, who's a colossal drug addicted screw up, and I think corrupt in all sorts of ways, is a political liability for him. And he didn't want to talk about it. And he also didn't want to embarrass his son. And so he just uh, by saying, I don't know anything, you know, I know nothing is a 
political safe harbor for someone who doesn't want to talk about this stuff at all. Um, it doesn't mean that he was taking bribes. And so establishing that he li- that Biden lied is useful if you're Jamie Comer or, or Jim Jordan or whoever. It just doesn't establish much beyond the fact that Biden lied and that should encourage you to look deeper. Um, anyway, so I, I think I've been clear about all this that I think that there's a... I've been on, I've been on an ascendant path of thinking more and more that there's there there to all of this. And I still absolutely think there could be. But the now that these guys are forcing me to pay even closer attention to it, I'm starting to have my, my rate of ascent has slowed and I might even be heading back to earth in my belief that there's a there there that, you know, um, because while it's all scuzzy and it's all sort of K Street gross, when you actually pay really close attention to what these guys are saying, what the GOP point people on this are saying, they're playing some games, right? And so if you, hopefully we can find it and put it in the show notes. Um, they did this press conference before the, the hearings where this congressman, I can't remember his name, I watched the full video. This congressman is laying out the case about Biden met with these Romanian officials after Hunter Biden sent a text message to these Romanian officials asking for money. Um, there's another story that broke yesterday in the Free Beacon that I, I, I haven't studied too closely, but I skimmed because I've become obsessed with looking for the dates in these alleged, this alleged evidence of, of, of bribery and whatnot. And a lot of the time, I'm not saying all the time because some of the Burisma stuff is interesting and worth looking at and all that. And some of the Kazakhstan stuff is interesting and worth looking at, which is also sort of a Burisma related thing. But it tells you something when they lead with these supposedly damning episodes that all take place in the middle of 2017 or towards the end of 2017. And the problem with that is that in 2017, Joe Biden was no longer a government official. He was setting up that Penn Center thing, he, nor was he a candidate, nor do I think in 2017 that he had plans to be a candidate. So you had this uh, situation where it's kind of gross revolving door influence peddling on the by, by Joe Biden, or at least it could be, right? It looks like it. That's not illegal. B, it is in no way proof of bribing a public official because he wasn't one. If that's the best evidence that they've got to support articles of impeachment, I don't know what, what the impeachable offense is. Again, I think it's scuzzy, but, you know, here you got Joe Biden who, you know, has been a senator you know, was first elected to the Senate in his early 20s, and he's looking to cash out. And he cashed out. I think that's kind of clear, and that's kind of gross, right? And all the people who thought it was outrageous that Ronald Reagan gave a couple highly paid speeches in Japan and how gross that was, everyone's got to put away their outrage about this kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, Barack Obama flies private jets and is worth, I don't know, $100, $200 million now or something like that. Ex-presidents make a lot of money. Maybe it shouldn't be like that. I think it probably shouldn't be like that. But so do I, I'm sorry, ex, ex-presidents and ex-vice presidents. And so Biden, maybe it's scuzzier than than most because 
you know, he had this fully operational Fugazi influence peddling system set up with his scuzzy son, and he just sort of slipped into it and turned on, you know, and turned it to 11, you know, and that's worth knowing, you know, there should be more journalism about it. That's great, but it's not impeachable. And so anyway, this press conference, this guy is talking about this, this event and this NBC reporter, Ryan Nobles, I think it is. Um, I can't remember his name. He asked the congressman, he says, okay, so what does that mean to you? Like, why is that evidence of corruption if it was taking place in August of 2017 when he is a former vice president and not a candidate, what is it, you know, like, how does that point towards criminal or impeachable activity? I got, obviously I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember these people's names. And the congressman had no frigging clue how to answer it. It was really bad. He just kept saying, you know, look, I'm not an expert in the timeline. And the reporter's like, okay, that's fine. But you brought this up. You wanted us to make an inference from this. What is the inference you want us to make? You know, what is it, what is it you think this signifies, symbolizes? Um, what do you think it's evidence of? The congressman just had no way of answering this. And ultimately he says, okay, well, what outlet are you with? You know, or what organization are you with? And the guy says NBC. And the congressman was like, well, you're not going to believe us no matter what we say. And I, <laughs> I get that instinct, but I'm totally on team NBC right now because like the reporter says, no, 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 no. Look, you brought this up. This is your evidence. This is the thing that you are citing as proof of something. I have an open mind about this. I want, and maybe he doesn't, but there's no reason to second to gainsay him on that. He's asking a perfectly legitimate question. And he says, what is it that you think this is evidence of? Because in August of 2017, he wasn't a candidate and he wasn't a public official. And the guy is just, well, I'm not an expert in the timeline and you're not going to believe me anyway. And, and that was the end of it. At least that was the end of the, as far as I, could, I saw. And again, that doesn't mean the Republicans don't have more, but they're the ones who selected this as their go-to evidence. And that tells me something about what they have and don't have. And also there's the issue of like Hunter Biden's laptop, right? Which I'm perfectly happy to concede. It was his laptop. Um, it wasn't Russian disinfo. Don't want to have all those debates again. Perfectly respectable position to say I was I was wrong about uh, not hype, not not wanting to hype it more without knowing. I still find the story of the provenance of it, like how Giuliani got it, really weird and hard to believe. Take at face value, but at the same time, given what a dumb drug addict Hunter was back at the time. I can't dismiss that it was as that the, the cover story is the actual story. Regardless, let's talk about Hunter's laptop for a second. And I know I'm going over, but I just I want to get this out of my head. So it is his laptop. Republicans have had access to it for a very long time now. There's been a lot of stuff that looks really bad that has come off of it. And not just, you know, texts about the big guy and 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 you know. Uh, sleazy meetings and 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 all the rest, um, but also you know pictures of him with hookers, um, and uh, you know and wielding guns and all. I mean, I assume all that stuff comes from the laptop. Lots of bad stuff is on that laptop. And so again, this is not direct evidence of anything. It's it's some inferences that I am drawing from this. But it just I've been thinking about it. The idea that the that if, if the cover story is true about how he just forgot about it at a pawn shop, at a repair shop, and it 
and it has all of this incredibly embarrassing and sensitive stuff on it. Again, gross pictures of drug use and sex, as well as countless embarrassing texts and incriminating emails. It seems to me that if, in fact, his dad was taking bribes, there would be more evidence of it on the laptop itself. There would be, I mean, because again, we're talking about a guy who clearly did not have, uh, I don't know, what would you call it? Intel discipline um, about what he kept on his laptop and how he handled his laptop. He had all sorts of crazy, stupid, embarrassing, mortifying, incriminating stuff on the laptop. The idea that somehow he would allow all that stuff to stay on there, forget that he dropped it off at a repair shop, but have incredible discipline to keep off all of the smoking gun evidence about his dad's cooperation in this stuff just strikes me as kind of implausible. And you can say, well, you know, maybe they had a strict rule about not incriminating dad, you know, on electronic communications. That is entirely possible. I just don't think it is as probable as some people might think, because, again, this happens a lot. You can't have it both ways. Hunter Biden is a loose, decadent, corrupted, undisciplined drug addict, or he's a brilliant criminal mastermind. Can't have it both ways. You can't say, look at all this incriminating stuff, you know, all this and not just on the laptop, but just in his lifestyle, throwing a gun away in a garbage bin by a school, um, lying on the form, drug addiction, trying to write off his his mistress in California as a consultant. I mean, you can go down the long list. You can't, can't point to all of these things that show what a chaotic, screwed up life he was living and then say, yeah, but he was super, 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 super careful about not saying anything in electronic communications about how his dad was totally in on this bribery scheme, particularly when you have to add in the fact that in 2017, there was no bribery scheme. In, you know, there was no uh, uh, Bob Menendez style um, selling of access to a government official because he wasn't a government official. And so you'd actually think that they would be even more comfortable to speak freely about Biden's past role Joe Biden's past role, now that they were finally liberated from these constraints about, you know, not wanting to, like, get in trouble with the law. And there's just none of that there. So, again, I think the whole thing is super scuzzy. I think the whole thing, I think the way, certainly the way Biden's, I guess, two brothers ran their business. Like, I, you know, I have this big thing, you know, that, that sort of Saving Private Ryan thing about, like, wanting to be a good man. I... You know, and it, maybe I'm missing all sorts of aspects to, of their lives. And so I don't want to be wildly unfair. But if I spent, you know, my entire career into my 70s and 80s, basically just trading on my brother's name, the appearance of influence and access, often without actually delivering, I would find that a pretty wasted life. Now, again, there may be all sorts of stuff about these guys. I don't know. But that's the way it appears, at least, you know from my distance, all scuzzy, all gross, lots of deception, lots of sort of, you know, undermining of Biden's sanctimonious, take my word as a Biden, you know, stuff kind of gets at that whole, you know, the real scandal isn't um, what's illegal, but what's legal. Have a field day with all that kind of stuff. But 
um, like I'm more skeptical now that they are going to find what they think is obviously there, you know, than I was a month ago. And maybe the hearings will uncover stuff. I am totally open to the possibility that I'm wrong about this. But as I just look at, you know, their own admissions about what they have and don't have, the reason why they need to do this, according to them, right? Not the real reason, but according to them, because I think this is all driven by dumb MAGA politics and McCarthy's pandering to the sort of uh, the hotheads who um, are always ungrateful to him and are coming, you know, coming for his scalp as we speak. But their stated rationales for all of this um, and their stated admissions about what they have and they don't have, as much as they try to like fudge it up by talking about things in 2017 as 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 if they were when he was still a, a vice president or as if when he was a candidate or president, that's to me a pretty strong tell that um, either they don't realize how little they have or they don't care. And maybe that will change entirely possible, but I'm just, I'm more skeptical than I was a month ago, um, given what these guys are putting forward. All right. Uh, we're going to do an AMA sometime soon. Um, you can, um, I think we'll have the the remnant at Gmail. Uh, I'm sorry, the remnant at the dispatch.com email set up by the time you hear this. But you might just want to cc guy.denton at aei.org if you have questions you want to ask. Um, I guess we'll save some of my van life stuff for then. I have a bunch of travel and work stuff, work travel and some other stuff in October. Uh, so we're going to be racking and stacking um, episodes uh, in the can in the coming weeks. And I may have another guest host or two. Uh, let us know, you know, who else you'd like to have as a guest host. Please, if you can, become a subscriber to The Dispatch. You know, uh, you know that Mark Helprin guy uh, who's, uh, who got in some trouble back in the Me Too era and um, went off to start his own sort of substacky newsletter kind of thing. Um, you'll hear him on commentary podcast uh, from time to time. Not, not a huge fan of the guy, uh, but he's smart. He knows about politics stuff, but he's got some, you know, bespoke concierge uh, newsletter thing going on. I think it's called Wide World or News or something like that. By all means, if you have the means to subscribe to it, go ahead. I I, I won't be. But he charges charges something like four thousand dollars a year for the silver tier one, or three thousand dollars a year for the silver tier one, and the top tier one is like six thousand dollars a year. And I can guarantee you this: as good as it may or may not be, I mean, again, Pod, who I love dearly, is a big fan of his. I guarantee you, you would get more for ten dollars a month from being a subscriber to the dispatch and, um, or a hundred bucks a year. So that's what more like eight bucks a month, nine bucks a month. Someone do the math for me. Um, they told me there'd be no math and you'd be supporting something that uh, I think that you're listening to this. You should want to succeed. Um, you'd let us do more exciting stuff. Um, you get great value for it and access to all sorts of cool stuff you can only get if you're a member of the dispatch. So um, if you can do it, if you can swing it, really appreciate it. 
Um, I think you'll be glad you did. And I know um, you'll be helping us, you know, our, 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 our business goal ultimately, I mean, our, our business goal ultimately is sky's the limit, but our big goal is to get to 100,000 paid subscribers. And if we could do that, Katie bar the door in terms of the kind of coverage we can do, the kind of beats we could cover, the kind of products we could offer. We need to, uh, you know, we need to boost our subscriptions. Um, we're doing well. We're, we're in no danger of going um, under, but we don't want to plateau. We want to keep going. And the best people out there for marketing us, we have the most devoted um, wonderful readers. We get, we hear from them all the time. It means the world to us. The test, you know, we have a whole testimonials channel in Slack where everyone, you know, will uh, post screen captures or whatever from people's tweets, people's DMs, people's text messages, emails, things in the comment section. And it's really heartwarming, um, reassuring, gratifying stuff. And we know when we go to the meetups, how many people we hear from who are just so grateful for what we've been doing and what we do. And we're an island of sanity and we're someplace that they can trust and makes them feel like they're not taking crazy pills and all this kind of stuff. Even from, you know, left-wing people who appreciate that, you know, we're not just taking positions to, you know, be lawyers for conservatives or, 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 or spinners for the Republican Party. We really take you know, our integrity and our honesty seriously. I am not making invidious aspersions on anybody. Um, and if if people take offense at other places by these statements, I think that's more your insecurity than, 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 than what I'm intending to do here. All I'm doing is speaking for us. We try really hard, earn the trust and the support that we get from our, our, our members. If you agree with what we're trying to do, I really think it's 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 one of the best values out there in um, in all of the media. So if you can help, that's great. If you can sign up, I think it's great for us and it's great for you. Really appreciate it. And um, other than that, I feel like there are like another dozen things I'm supposed to talk about. I'll save them for another time. And uh, thanks for listening. And I will talk to you next time. <laughs>